0: Before we get started with today's episode, I want to let you know that we'll be talking with a COVID survivor about some of the traumatic effects of the virus. If this is too difficult for you right now, please check out the show notes for some resources. We're talking about this today so that you know that you're not alone. Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti Golar, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And today, it's our season finale. And there is no other way for us to conclude the season than to talk with those who have survived and lost loved ones to COVID. Our first guest is co founder and co executive director of Mark by COVID, Kristen Urquiza. Having had a family member pass away, due to COVID-19's misregulation, she shares with us how the pandemic brought forth an urgent need for action on a range of inequities. Our second guest is school teacher and activist for long COVID, Shamir Smith. She gives us a raw look into her life after contracting COVID and discusses the long-term effects of the virus that many are simply not talking about. And last, but certainly not least, We are joined by Melissa Thompson, founder and CEO of Ramp Your Voice, an organization focused on promoting self-advocacy and strengthening empowerment among disabled people. Melissa will give us an inside look on a day in the life of a person with disabilities during the pandemic. I hope you enjoy our final episode of the season. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are joined by someone who has unfortunately really been impacted by the COVID pandemic, but has turned it into activism and education, which we know women do. And it's what we highlight on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. So please welcome Kristen Urquiza with Marked by COVID. How are you?
1: I am okay. And I'm really excited to be here to have this conversation with you. So thanks for having me on.
0: We really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about just what you've seen and experienced during this time, and also how you are using your voice and the unfortunate tragedy to make sure that others don't have to go through what you went through. So first, let's talk about Your journey with COVID, which really involves your father, who unfortunately passed away. He was one of the people who listened to Donald Trump, thought this was a hoax, and it really changed your entire family's life. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, as background, my dad was a lifelong Republican. Uh, He also was in ROTC as a kid, and his brothers were all in the armed uh, forces, which he would have gone into if he had not had an injury. Um, And I just give that as context because my dad was really trained to listen to people in charge. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're supposed to do during a crisis, right, is follow the leadership of people in charge, in particular, of people that you trust. And my dad trusts Donald Trump and the Republican governor of the state of Arizona, where he lived, Doug Ducey. And in May of 2020, when the state reopen, reopen quickly with measures saying that local towns and municipalities couldn't have mask mandates. My dad believed that we were on the other side of the pandemic, that it was safe to resume normal activities, and that it was his patriotic duty to get out and help get the economy back going. And within a couple of weeks, he caught the virus. And that began his journey. And that journey, unfortunately, ended with him passing. I always knew that losing a parent would be hard, but losing one under these circumstances just is an order of magnitude that I think we don't quite have the social tools to understand. We were isolated. We couldn't have a proper funeral for my dad. I couldn't even hug my mom. She was also COVID positive, so I was worried about her As well. Luckily, she was fine. You know, I I was trying to get home to Arizona because he took a the doctors the day before were telling us that he was improving and then he died a day later. And I was trying to, to get home to Arizona from California. And so I ended up taking the phone call that my dad died from a gas station on the side of the road. Just everything about it was not okay. And meanwhile, you know, my dad was Mexican American, first generation. Our neighborhood, my childhood neighborhood, where he still lived and where my mom still lives, is a 70% Latino, um, 33% immigrant community that lives, you know, mostly around the margins as far as, um, you know, income and wealth goes. And people in that community were waiting 13 hours in line for a COVID test. So this wasn't February or March of 2020. This was in June of 2020, whenever the governor had said that there were enough tests for everyone to go around, that we were prepared for the onslaught. And that just simply wasn't true for my immigrant, mostly people of color neighborhood. And as this tragedy rained down on me, it was just literally days after the brutal murder of George Floyd, I remember thinking to myself, I can't sit on the sidelines on my own story. I need to raise my voice because if not me, who, if not now, when? I thought about that mm-hmm. old Jewish saying. That's sort of what started me on this journey.
0: And turning that pain into power led you to Marked by COVID. So tell us a little bit about its creation. The attention that you all received, including I was one of the millions of people that saw you speak at the Democratic National Convention and the awareness that you're trying to to raise. And just one of the things that popped into my mind is we know that so many people lost parents, but I was reading a report the other day that a little bit over 100,000 children lost a primary caregiver you just think about what their lives are like now. And you experiencing losing a parent as an adult. And like, I lost my father. So we know how hard that is. But these young kids.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad that you raised that. I The thing that keeps me up at night are the kids, 110,000 children that lost a primary caregiver. And You know, had this happened 20 years ago when I was a kid, my, we would have been in financial ruin. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, we have no plan right now for ensuring that those kids not only have the grief and mental health counseling that they need, but the financial security to not be further pushed onto the margins. And this pandemic has been held by people of color, which we already have a huge wealth gap. So this is a big concern to me personally, but also to Mark by COVID. And so when my dad passed, I looked around for any sort of established avenue to channel my pain, my story, and there was nothing. The big groups out there that are established with big budgets, um, you know, nobody was working on COVID advocacy. So My partner in life, Christine, and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, let's do this. And it really started as a small operation to help other people who had lost a loved one share their story and to push policymakers on the local and national level to combat the spread of the virus. But since then has grown, we've developed an entire federal policy platform on how do we actually ensure that the needs of those most impacted are not left behind. Going back to the kids, one of the policy solutions that we're fighting for are baby bonds to make sure that we have a child savings account for these kids so that whenever they graduate from high school, that they have some sort of financial security to be able to go to college or start a small business or invest into a house. But there's a, a lot of other things that we need to do. And this pandemic has really laid bare, which many of us have already known and been fighting for the deep inequities in our society. And Marked by COVID is really working to bring new activists into the fold, as well as um you know connecting with established groups and organizations to make those connections to this latest disaster and disease and that you know we can sh- demonstrate through this pandemic the urgent need for action on a whole host of social issues that have been around for a really long time so that's sort of like the big picture of what we're what we're working for you know, in addition to the to the children, the other thing that keeps me up at night are the folks that have not yet found the community to help them channel their grief. Who've been severely impacted by COVID. There's just so many more people out there. We have not yet had the opportunity to help bring them into the community, whether it's marked by COVID or somewhere else, and help them know that they're not alone and that the way they feel is is totally valid. Like this was not supposed to happen like this. Right. We need to continue to channel that, that into, into action. So that's a little bit more about us. It's a tall order for
0: sure. One of the things that I always go back to when I'm thinking about this pandemic is the CDC saying that if we just would have wore a mask or socially distanced a few weeks earlier, it wouldn't have had to be like this. And it goes back to just showing us again how important leadership is, who our elected officials are. You know, right now we are seeing the vaccination campaign. It's here, but we're also seeing a rise in the Delta variant. And there was a viral post by a woman doctor in Alabama who talked about people contracting the Delta variant, being sick, literally you know, almost at the end of their life and wanting the vaccine. And she's saying it's too late. And then when she's telling their family members, she's telling them, please get vaccinated. And it's unfortunate that that's one of the messages right now is look at what happened to your family member. They wanted the vaccine when it was too late. We need you to get vaccinated. We're also now seeing a lot of conservative Republican elected officials who are now pleading with people to get vaccinated after so long of saying they're not getting vaccinated. You know, you don't need it. What do you mark by COVID make of all of this with people still not wanting to get vaccinated after they've seen how much harm, generational harm This pandemic has caused.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think about it from my own personal story as well. Like, my dad was a victim of disinformation. He believed, you know, what he was hearing on Fox News that it was safe and that those messages, you know, came directly from leaders and policymakers. And so it's a little bit more complicated than just disinformation, it's about the whole chain of lies that are being propagated in our society that are really pernicious and like intended to sow doubt in our institutions. And we are seeing the latest manifestation of that. And just as the pandemic has, you know, laid to bear the deep, Racial and health disparities in our country. I think it's also laid to bear the deepness of disinformation. And I don't blame individuals. Like, I don't blame my dad for deciding to meet up with friends to celebrate a birthday party. My dad was the most extroverted person that I have ever met in my life. That man, he was the center of his community. He brought people together to celebrate and to just love the the partnership of friends and family. And for us right now, we're in a race against time. And time is on the side of the Delta variant. Yes, we need to battle disinformation, but we also need to continue to focus on the things that we know that work really quickly. And that's masking. And that's also lowering barriers to access. I kid you not, in my Latino community, I hear this and the data supports it every single day of people who are struggling still to gain access to the vaccine, the largest barrier being employers not giving paid time off and people being worried Mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, they're gonna lose their job. And we haven't been given survival checks to people every single month. What are folks supposed to do? And so we are putting our communities into this impossible position. And by only focusing in on disinformation, what I'm seeing, and what is really alarming to me is that people are turning against people. And that is the condition where the pandemic thrives. When we're you know, yelling at somebody whose dad just died that they should have gotten vaccinated. That's the last thing in the world a grieving daughter needs to hear.
0: So there's a lot of people who just want the pandemic to be over. We know that we still have a lot of work to do. So given what you just said, there's a lot of people who are already like, I'm not putting back on the mask. You better not shut things back down. What advice do you have to everyone who is still convincing those that are in their friendship circles, their family, their colleagues who still think it's all a big hoax and don't want to get vaccinated?
1: (sighs) It's a tough, tough nut to crack because it's different for every single person. And the way that, you know, I have approached these conversations, it's more from a place of curiosity. We cannot shame people to taking the vaccine. We cannot guilt people into taking the vaccine. And oftentimes even personal loss or setbacks are not going to work. I try to approach it from a curiosity Perspective an open mind um, to try to understand where people are coming from. Both both my parents were registered Republicans, and you know my mom and I over the course of the last year have gl- grown really close because of this in a way that we've never been. And you know we our closeness now. She's sharing with me some of the social media stuff that she gets sent that undermines the vaccines. My mom's been vaccinated. She was definitely a believer. And I don't think she's actually really a Republican anymore. But that aside, (laughs) that, that aside, she's actually opening up about what she's being exposed to in that universe. And we're actually able to have real conversations about how it's harmful, how it's disinformation, you know, looking together and helping her sort of gain more confidence in being able to call out that news sources and kind of see and massage the difference. And so that, that is work that like you got to commit to and put aside, like all the knowledge that you have about why this is the right thing to do and it's easy and it's free and just kind of just be there with people from this place of empathy and love.
0: That is such a good message to share We've been talking about all season about how the pandemic has highlighted a lot of inequities that we already knew were there and how we can still use this time to make change because that's a key component of the podcast is how are we using our voice despite all the obstacles to make things better. And we know that when it comes to COVID, there's still going to be so much in the future that we need to do to ensure that when the next big thing hits, it's not as bad as it is now. So tell us how we can stay updated with you and the work of Mark by COVID to continue to amplify our voices, to make change and do our best that we can as individuals to see people get vaccinated and get the services that they need.
1: Yeah, I'm I think a lot about this in the context of, you know, we are entering a time of uncertainty and crisis, especially whenever you think about the climate crisis that we're in. So this is like a training opportunity for us in order to protect the most amount of people. And that's part of the reason why I'm, it's, you know, bigger than just my dad. It's about all of us. And, you know, I am really personally driven by removing barriers for folks to help them raise their voice. We do lots of trainings, support. So folks who are interested, uh, we are an open door. Our website is marked by COVID. We're super active on on Twitter, Facebook as well. We have support groups. Just join in, uh, join a meeting, join in the conversation. At the end of the day, your presence is the gift you don't have to say anything, but just you know come and be part of our community, and we'll figure out how to plug you in. Kristen, thank you
0: so much for sharing your experience with us, and again turning your pain into power, and helping so many people get vaccinated, but also have a community of support which we know is just so, so important. So thank you.
1: My pleasure. And thanks again for having me on. This has been great.
0: We are now joined by Shamir Smith as we talk about the impact of COVID on women of color.
2: Shamir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ashanti. I'm really, really excited to be here for for more reasons than I could ever say. (laughs) (laughs) We are thrilled to have
0: you. First, I want to just ask, how are you doing during this time? It's almost over a year since the pandemic started, the stay-at-home orders. We're seeing the Delta variant. How
2: are you? Um, so I've been dealing with my own health challenges for the past um, few weeks and um, I, I'm i getting nervous again. I'm, I'm starting to feel feelings of anxiety and and worry and frustration as I see cases of COVID ramping back up. I'm starting to feel a little bit more panic stricken because I'm back in the house. I started to kind of go outside and be a little bit more sociable when I could. But now I'm back in my room, I'm back in the house and um, where I intend to stay for a couple of, you know, until things calm down. But I've I've just been dealing with a lot, my my own health challenges and trying to find some bright spots in a very tragic situation.
0: Aren't we all? And you have been such a strong voice for COVID, talking about your experiences, but also dealing with long COVID. And it's something that we're hearing about, but we're not hearing a lot about. I feel even when I'm having conversations with people, they'll say, yeah, it's been seven months since my friend caught COVID and they still can barely walk to the mailbox. And for me, as someone who deals with severe allergies and asthma, That is frightening to me, you know, just what they're dealing with. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey and your experiences with long COVID?
2: Absolutely. Um, So I got sick last March. Before being sick, I was a teacher in Baltimore City. Um, Sadly, I've had to give up my job and my career because of my COVID infection and now dealing with long COVID. But prior to becoming sick with COVID, I was on the trajectory of becoming a principal or a curriculum writer for the city of Baltimore in education just a week before schools had been closed down i had gotten a visit from the state and the state came into my room and they were so awed you know by the students these are beautiful black and brown students who who showed up to my 8th grade classes and they just were killing it with shakespeare and you know, reading levels getting higher and higher and, and killing standardized testing. So I was doing the right thing. You know, I had achieved not only the American dream, but the black woman's American dream. And then March 22nd, 2020 happened. I was also in a relationship at that time too. So, (laughs) so I was living my best life as, as I would say, as we would say. And so March 22nd came last year and it started with a a sore throat, had a sore throat and, um, had just gotten off the phone with my mental health therapist and she was walking me through because I was feeling anxious then because they had shut schools down. I did not know when we were going to return back to work. I was concerned for my students who lived in impoverished areas who might need food and supplies, trying to figure out ways to get those things to them. And I kept having this annoying sore throat. The sore throat turned into a lot of fatigue. And I remember calling my best friend that evening and I said, girl, I'm, I'm just not feeling well. I said, I hope I don't have COVID. She said, oh, you don't have it, girl. It's new. It's not, not anything to be concerned about. And I said, OK. Went to bed that night, woke up and had the most eerie spinal pain. I never experienced a pain like that before. Called my doctor. He said, "Oh, you're fine. You know you have sinus infections and at that time they weren't testing, so I could not get a COVID test. Also, I didn't meet the requirements. I didn't have a fever. I didn't have a, a lot of shortness of breath and the other things, and so I couldn't get a test. But I knew something was wrong. My body felt very different. I just couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I I know tired, but I never felt as tired as I did before." But that first week of symptoms grew into a loss of vision for five months, severe memory loss, concentration issues. I can't focus anymore for long periods of time. I experienced large waves of brain fog. I just got diagnosed with cognitive um, cognitive impairment. I can no longer recall information like I used to be used to. Reading is difficult for me now. Uh, For several months last year, I was bed bound. I couldn't even get up out of my bed except to use the restroom. I couldn't cook for myself. I was not independent at all. And I'm an independent woman, right? My godmother, who I live with, took care of me night and day for at least the first nine months of my illness. But more importantly than that, I experienced Humiliation in the form of racial profiling in the hospitals here in Baltimore City, as well as uh, sexism. I had a doctor tell me one time while I had been hospitalized for some neurological symptoms that I experienced as a result of COVID, instead of him agreeing with me that perhaps uh, brain dysfunction happened as a result of COVID, he wanted to outline his pedigree to me about how many colleges he went to. While I was trying to tell him this was happening, he was telling me that I was crazy and that He went to this school and he hadn't read anything that I was talking about. Now, at that time, I was very sick. So all I was doing when I could was read. I knew what I was talking about. Only for us a year later to find out that COVID, in fact, causes major heartbreaking neurological symptoms, including delirium, PTSD, depression, suicidal thoughts, all the things I suffered with. It has been quite the ride for me. And please believe me when I tell you. I don't say this lightly and I don't say this for any effect. I've lost everything. I lost everything. I lost my, for three months, I felt like I was losing my mind. I lost my job. (laughs) I lost my income. I lost my savings. I lost my hope for my future. Um, But the last thing I'll say is that as a black woman in an urban area I understand that I have so much power and that when there's a dysfunction, whether it's physical or mental in a black woman's brain, her body and her ability to provide for herself, that destroys an ecosystem. So I've been watching for the past almost 17 months things in my life be almost destroyed. With the income I was making as a teacher about to transition to another career, I was on the track to helping my mother retire. Now I can't do that. Now I am calling deadly, trying to get government assistance. I am being told that I don't qualify for this, I don't qualify for that. I'm having a hard time getting people to believe that I am now disabled. And then I can't teach in a black school anymore. I learned last, uh, two years ago at Stanford University that students who are taught by black teachers fare better overall, academically, socially, behaviorally. And the fact that my presence is lost from my school changes the outcome of the school and so there's so much loss and devastation as a result of me losing so much at the hands of COVID. i feel so many
0: emotions listening to you talk and i think the most predominant one is just anger like especially when you said Oh, I knew something was wrong with me because like as black women, like we know when something is off, we do. And you went to the hospital and again, it was the racism, the sexism. I'm sorry, that doctor mansplaining to you, that was the misogyny that you unfortunately are another black woman who had that firsthand experience with the inequities Of our healthcare system even in the middle of a global pandemic you were still othered and not listened to and that that angers me so much
2: i'm glad we share that you know it's unfortunate that all of what i've had to do in the last 16 going on 17 months has happened but it was that anger it was tough. Cause I was in this very room in the dark. I could not even really, I had lost my vision. I couldn't really, I couldn't see out of my left eye. All I knew to do for days and months at a time was lie in bed and pray that I didn't die. Right. But something happened to me at the end of June going on July. And I said to myself, I, I got tired of crying about the circumstances in my situation. And I said, Somebody is going to listen to me. And so I took the angry black woman syndrome and I turned it into something positive, right? Because I don't believe it's a syndrome. I think for me, it saved my life. Me getting mad enough helped to upset systems. People started to listen because I was like, well, first of all, I've been to like, two, three hospitals in the city and they're telling me the same thing. They're telling me that I'm crazy. I was offered a stay in the psych ward at one of our leading hospitals in the city. I said, so that's number one. And I said, and number two, if it's happening to me, I know it's happening to other women in this city. It's happening to other black families. It's happening. What if my students get this sick? What are they being told? And so I transformed all of that energy and I just started typing. I typed to doctors at the hospitals. I typed to to politicians here in Baltimore. I was I was going off. And so slowly but surely, I started to get things moving in the right direction. Local politicians were sending me emails saying, I'm so sorry about your circumstances. Let's do some further investigations. And then I kept thinking to myself in media. I was reading a lot of the same stories about COVID, which was then growing into long COVID, but I wasn't seeing anybody that looked like me. So I started talking to the media. I was like, somebody is going to hear me. And so that put me on a path to advocating for myself, trying to educate black people and making that a focus. It's hard sometimes though, because I've heard different people say, well, why do you have to talk about advocating for black people? And I was like, because there's not enough advocacy for us anywhere it is my responsibility to tell my story to save us it took the cdc 6 to 7 months to recognize that there were some health disparities happening with covid patients we we knew that even before covid hit Yeah. It's my responsibility to warn another sister to tell her, hey, girl, if you're having these symptoms, here's what you need to know. Here's this information. Here's the doctors you can go to. Here's how you can uh, make sure that you're not dismissed by these doctors. It's my responsibility. And I will never apologize for that.
0: We are so thankful for you speaking out. And, you know, someone even asked me, oh, this is new for the BGG podcast. We were surprised to see you focusing on COVID, you know, from a political angle. And they asked me why. And I said, this pandemic has been covered in the media from a white middle-class perspective. Like, let's be clear. So we were absolutely going to bring this to the BGG and talk about it from that political side, because this is also, it's Healthcare, it's politics, it's education, it's everything. And it has not gotten enough coverage about the impact on Black, Brown, and Indigenous women of color. And I wanted to make sure we had voices like you on here to talk about it because a lot of the mainstream media still doesn't want to listen.
2: They don't. And, and you know, I was so um, excited to join you because it's very rare that I get to talk to black media. I've been wanting to tweeting whomever I could to be like, hey, cover this story, because it's so important. There's a middle ground for us that we're not discussing. Right. You, you have COVID and you're sick for two weeks or you die. Right. I am very mm-hmm. much in the middle. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. die. And it didn't just last for two weeks. This is probably going to be my life for the rest of my life. And it's important that I let other Black women and Black people know how much this will affect your life. And as you mentioned, it has affected every aspect of my life, my income, my brain. I just, you know, talked to the NIH about two weeks ago on the subject, uh, the burden of a Black woman's broken brain. My brain is broken. People see me and they think, oh, you're better. I'm not better. Right. Just because right. I'm living does not mean that I'm living with a the great quality of life I had before uh, March 22nd, 2020. This affects everything. It's a, it's going to affect our workforce. I read on uh, Forbes that last year, black women lost more jobs than any other race of people. We talk about in our episode, the She Session. Can you imagine if up to 30% of people get long COVID, if there's a percentage of those people who are Black women and they lose their jobs or they become disabled, what's going to happen to the workforce, which is already struggling? Yep. When I say that this upset my world, I mean it. In every facet of my life, everything has been upset. Everything has... Has, has changed. Nothing will be the same for me again. And you're also
0: sparking the much-needed conversation about what disability looks like and is, because people always just want to see the physical side of disability. They don't think about the other countless ways that people are disabled. And this pandemic is making people disabled. And again, i don't understand why we're not having that conversation.
2: Yeah, it is. And I and that's another part of this from a black woman's perspective is that we carry so much. We are responsible for so many people, including ourselves, that when we say things like we're sick or we don't feel well, people look at our outward appearance and they expect resiliency. Right. So, yeah, I've been resilient. Thank God I'm still here, but I'm struggling. And right now, like I mentioned earlier, my biggest struggle is proving to people how sick I am, Mm. proving, proving to doctors still 17 months later how sick I am so that they can actually start writing on paper. Miss Smith is ill. There's a problem here. So that government officials and agencies can read that and say, well, she qualifies. She may qualify for disability uh, benefits. Right now, I have no income. I'm waiting on long-term disability, social security, and um, unemployment. It's like a game. Okay, who's who's gonna who's gonna send me an acceptance letter first? And I never lived like that. I always saved my money. You know, I spent my money well, I did the right thing. You did what you're supposed to do. Right. So fine, I got a beg, and I paid into it the system. I, right. You know, so now I got to beg you, for you to help me, and I did everything I was supposed to do. How we look at disability, I think I would project in the next two to five years is going to change. I actually just read some information that I, um, I work with a group called Body Politic, which I'm really proud of. It's a long COVID uh, support group. It's a grassroots group. And we just got some information where um, we work with the Biden administration to start thinking about guidance and recommendations to employers about what long COVID could look like in the workforce, in the workplace. And we just got some a little bit of good news where um, President Biden has recommended the Office of Disability. I can't think of the full name. I'm sorry. But that office, to uh, he shared some recommendations and some guidelines on how to treat employees with long COVID. So I'm very proud of that. It's a small step in the right direction, but we need some money too, so.
0: (laughs) So thank you for your work with that as an employer. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. So we also know in our community, just also just across the globe, there's people that still do not want to get vaccinated. And we are just very pro-vaxxer here at the BGG. I knew when we did this season, I was going to get the hate mail. I don't care, whatever, still pro-vaxxer. What do you say to the people who still feel that they shouldn't get vaccinated as someone who is dealing with long COVID and who knows the absolute hardship that it can cause if you contract COVID?
2: Yeah, I am a proponent for the vaccine. I... I wanted it because I wanted to assure that this never happened to me in the same capacity that it happened before. I wanted it, too, because um, my brother just had a baby and I wanted to be around my niece. And I understand the historic implications that medical studies and vaccinations has, have caused in our communities. There's been a lot of wrong done in the past. But I don't want to see anybody else stricken the way I was with this disease. I think if I had an opportunity to talk to anybody like up close and personal, they would change their stance on getting vaccinated because this not only kills, it destroys. And so I, I ran to get my vaccination. And I, I am so grateful that I did it I believe that it it's protected me. For the little bit of times that I've gone out, I still wear my mask. I don't play. Same, same. (laughs) But I would advise people to go to run, not walk to get those shots. They are very important. They protect from major uh, severe illness. I know that for a fact. I know people who um, who sadly have gotten sick after vaccination, but they weren't as sick. It's important to still go and get them. Shamir, thank you so much for joining us,
0: for sharing your story, for your advocacy. Like we see how you're making things better in the workplace, just in general. And I hope that for our listeners, that hearing Shamir's story will help you talk to those who are so hesitant to get the vaccination. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. And now it's time for a day in the life. This time we're featuring Phyllisa Thompson.
3: My name is Felissa Thompson. I'm a macro social worker here in South Carolina. I have a disability activism organization, and blog called Ramp Your Voice that I created in 2013, where I look at disability from intersectional lens through race, gender and disability. For my identities, I identify as a black disabled woman. I use identity first language because disability is a part of my identity as well as being a black and woman. My activism is intersectional, but I intentionally centers the experience of black disabled women since we, feminists since we get left out of a conversation about blackness, disability, gender, and our experiences matter. And that's the focus of what I do. So I've started waking up early in the morning between 6 and 7 a.m. At the start of the pandemic, I was leaving my former job and started working for myself. So being at home and then working was something that I knew that if I'm going to be intentional, I wanted to just really have a nail down of my day. Now my whole career basically has been work from home. When I started my active work in 2013, to when I was working four-time jobs between 2016 to the end of 2019. Working from home is ideal for me as someone who currently doesn't drive due to modified vehicles being very expensive for which to used by myself. And where I live, public transportation is pretty much non-existent. So not having to worry about commuting or catching a ride just really leaves a lot of stress off the table for me when it comes to actually getting work done. Being able to work from home due to technology and opportunity means that I could find and retain work that's ideal for me. That's a little bit out of the box. With working from home, it just allows me to have this freedom in what I do. It allows me to have freedom in my actual work schedule. I can decide when I want to work. I can decide who I want to work with, the projects that I take on, you know, where I want to work with in case I wanted to go to a coffee shop or even where it's in when I was traveling. I can do work from wherever, as long as I have an internet connection. And during these times of the pandemic, I've been able to not just work literally from home due to everything that's going on, but also have the opportunity to work with community members and organizations that I may not have had the opportunity to if I was obligated to uh, travel to them or to be in office. During this season of pretty much a year and a half, I've been doing a number of speaking opportunities, consultings, trainings, and so forth. And even been able to be involved politically with a presidential campaign, Elizabeth Warren campaign in 2020 in developing the policy that she had put out. The freedom of working from home really allows is for many disabled people like myself to have options. We understood before the pandemic how accessible work from home, or even going to school from home, could be if given a fair chance to. Many of us have lost out on opportunities because this accommodation wasn't to us, mainly due to the resistance to shift the way we work or do school, and that root of egoism. When I went out pre-pandemic, you know, to whether it's to a coffee shop or you know, to get my hair done, it was just you know no real hassle. The main issue I had was scheduling actual transportation. So where, who was going to take me, who's going to drive me there. Now, it's not just about figuring out the logistics, how I'm going to get there, but looking at where I'm going. I do look at the mask mandates or the mask requirements, if there's any. I know that there has been a shift from the beginning of the pandemic to now to where a lot of businesses don't require masks or don't mandate it or or have it even as a high suggestion that you wear one. For me, when I do go out, I double mask, um, especially, with, especially when we started seeing the variants come to play. I rarely go out, I go out maybe once or twice a month and that's to either the store since we don't have delivery sur- services here. So I have to go to the store or to get my hair done, very minimal contact. You know, I think a lot of the focus of COVID The conversations have been on like the big cities because those are the cities that was hit due to the large numbers of infections and also death rates. But for those of us like myself who live in small towns, then we have to interact with people, you know, like, you know, like I said, there's no delivery option. So even when it comes to dinners, you know, that's not an option, you know, groceries not an option. So many of us have to still engage with people. I think it really has an impact in our ability to be free to freely to move, to freely just do the things that we love. I know that even though I'm glad to be able to be at home and doing less travel, you know, I still miss being able to travel. You know, even for, you know, just doing those spontaneous things that takes a lot of planning now. This year and a half has been a time of true assessment of where do I want my life to go? You know, over the past year, I made decisions to, move abroad in next couple of years, something I never thought about before. And that was due to the uprisings in the summer of 2020, where we, I was really looking at, you know, living in this country as a Black disabled person and how I'm never going to feel safe here. <laughs> and where can I go to get some semblance of safety, some semblance of freedom that I don't think that America can afford me. The isolation has done me way better than what I would have thought. I think for me, the biggest things that I have witnessed when it comes to the aftermath of all this has been us looking at the selfishness of people. I think that for me, having a background in both psychology and social work, you understand the dysfunctionality of humans, you know, how that can go. But I've been saying to people over the past year, it feels like we're living in a real life case study of how, when everything goes wrong, how do people act? And I know that for a lot of people, a lot of relationships have been fractured, you know, due to the selfishness. you know, before we got the vaccines, people just going out here and not wanting to wear a mask and it's not due to any type of disability or medical reason. They just don't want to wear the mask because it infringes on their right, you know, whatever that truly means. And people just realizing the propaganda that has been out about the vaccine and the mask under the former administration and how that just really shaped the way that people treat it and view each other. And something that I always have to remind myself is when it comes to this country, America has never cared about the most marginalized people. And I think that we're seeing that critically when it comes to our children. You know, even from the quote-unquote birth of this nation, you know, in the way that enslaved children were treated, way indigenous children were treated, up to present day in which we're seeing that our children are, it's always being sacrificed, you know, to go to school with little to no um, mass policies in place to protect them. So, if you don't protect the children, that says a lot about your society. How many are particularly those who are disabled, those who are of color, We have to die for us to really take this thing seriously. The aftermath will be telling us to the number of people who get significantly sick, the number of people who will be living with long COVID, and the number of people who will die. And I think that's the constant trauma that we are all having to live with, the trauma of seeing leadership not doing what it should do and who is impacted by that.
0: Thank you so much for sharing with us, Melissa. For more information about Ramp Your Voice, visit RampYourVoice.com. 99% of the people who have caught COVID have survived. This is the new messaging that anti-vaxxers are using to defend not getting vaccinated, not wearing masks, and not social distancing. If survival is being used as synonymous for being alive, then yes. But if survival is being used as synonymous with continuing to exist and live in one's previous state prior to contracting COVID, then no. The 99% survival rate is not real. As we heard from our guests in today's episode, let's be clear the vaccine is an additional layer of protection. It is not a cure. We've been hearing about animals testing positive for COVID or having antibodies to the COVID-19 virus. Why does this matter? Why are people talking about it? How does it relate to the vaccine? Well, because of something called spillback or the reverse of the natural spillover from animals to people that many scientists believe caused the pandemic. In the end, this means that while the pandemic will eventually ease up over time, and I know we're all ready for that, COVID is pretty much here to stay, even if we reach herd immunity. So in conclusion, get vaccinated if you can, encourage others to get vaccinated if they can, and let's continue to look out for one another. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode. Stay tuned, though, because next week we're bringing you a special bonus episode. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can find us at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Until next time, Brown Girls.